The White House has ordered agencies to come up with a plan for adopting zero-trust cybersecurity on their networks. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency updates its guidance and services to help agencies get there. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday has the latest. And Justin, we know agencies are scrambling for these plans. Exactly what is CISA doing to help here? Right. So the big thing CISA is doing is updating its zero-trust maturity model which this strategy really hangs on. It published a draft version of the maturity model last June, and it accepted feedback on that model through the fall. And it's now updating that zero-trust maturity model with with the White House strategy that just came out in January. And so the model, the updated model, will be released later this summer. John Sims is Trusted Internet Connections Senior Technical Advisor at CISA, He spoke at an event last week hosted by the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center about how CISA could update that model here in the next few months. We're going to come out with a revision, too, sometime this year to really dig into some more details with regard to how Zero Trust aligns with our CISA programs and services. So we've done a lot of work with TIC so far, but CDM is another area that that I think could benefit from additional explanation and, and connectivity to the Zero Trust pillars and the federal strategy. All right. That's John Sims of CISA. And he was talking about CDM there, Justin, Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation. That's been around a while. Are they going to update that one also? Yeah, that's something CISA is actively working on now. CDM is one of CISA's biggest programs. As you mentioned, it's been around uh, since 2012. And it's one of the most important programs it offers to agencies because it provides them with cybersecurity services like identifying assets on their networks, doing real-time monitoring and and risk response. So very important services for agencies to use if they need them. And since 2012, agencies have made a big shift to cloud computing. And now they're moving forward with these zero trust concepts. So the world has changed a little bit. And Daniel Bardenstein is tech strategy lead at CISA. He also spoke at that ATARC event, and he says he and Sims are both working to update that CDM program in line with the Zero Trust strategy. Not only just revamping the CDM program and kind of evolving it, but also looking at being able to enrich CISA's ability to get good visibility to help support protecting departments and agencies in such a way that also supports the maturity and implementation of Zero Trust within the departments and agencies. So there's a lot of work going on there. And he's in a hurry to get there. Yeah, I think so. He's, he's a fast talker, hopefully a fast, fast developer. Now, these programs are ambitious, CDM plus zero trust. How are CISA and will the White House, the Office of Management and Budget, get involved here to make sure agencies are actually moving ahead with these plans for zero trust? Yeah, Sims says that's still to be determined. And the White House Office of Management and Budget is playing an instrumental role here, too, in addition to CISA overseeing all of this. Uh, OMB's Zero Trust strategy required agencies to come up with an implementation plan for fiscal years 2022 through 2024. Those plans are due at the end of this month, and that's in about three weeks. So agencies were also required to identify a Zero Trust security lead, aka the person responsible for implementing those plans. So they're putting the, the items in place to have some sort of accountability here. And Sim says CISA and OMB have had several discussions now about what kind of measures and metrics they're going to use to measure progress. 
looking at the plans that the agencies are submitting here within the next couple of weeks, they're going to use those to continue the dialogue with the agencies, not just from the federal CIO's office, but also the resource side of, of OMB. It's about bringing together the entire support mechanism that the agencies rely on to include CISA to help support this initiative. It's not some, something that's going to happen overnight, and they're just going to be looking for some level of progress. And again, John Sims of, he calls it CISA. I think CISA is more right because the S stands for security, right? Not you zebras. Know, I think Director Jen Easterly agrees with you. I think it's CISA. All right. Well, whatever. CISA, CISA, we know who they are. They want to make sure agencies have maturity zero, I guess. You have zero maturity, then you're really doing well in this whole era. And Justin, you're also reporting that uh, CISA, CISA, whatever you want to call it, has a new guide for agencies and how they should use zero trust for mobile devices, which would seem to be a fairly pressing issue. Yeah, it's another draft guide here. In addition to the maturity model, you now have applying zero trust principles to enterprise mobility. And as you alluded to, agencies are using are overseeing their employees who are using more mobile devices than ever before in this pandemic era. And CISA says special consideration is needed for mobile devices and zero trust, given how widespread they are and how fast the technology changes there. And so the good news is the guide says the underpinnings of zero trust security already exist in the mobile ecosystem. Mobile systems are generally built in with security features like segmentation that are kind of crucial to this whole zero trust concepts. But one area for improvement is enterprise logging, monitoring, diagnostics, and mitigation, essentially tools that allow agencies to know what's happening on these mobile devices, or they can look into what happened on a device when there's an incident and they can quickly address it. So that's another thing for agencies to consider as they build out their zero trust plans. And Justin, one other detail I wanted to ask you about is that there is a new chief information officer for the intelligence community, something you've been covering pretty intensively lately. That's right. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haynes just announced that Adele Merritt will be the IC's next CIO. And Merritt has served in several positions throughout the IC over uh, about two decades now. She started her career at the National Security Agency. She also served as deputy CIO for cyber at the Department of Energy. And she was on the National Security Council during the Obama administration. So she's bringing all that experience to oversee IT issues for the intelligence community the time when they're also adopting cloud and looking to zero trust security and really changing their IT environments as the technology changes. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about 
them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And And I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my my mind to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.